You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge, life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. It's among the most highly anticipated elections in modern U.S. history. But what will election night 2020 look like from here in California? I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth. And today on the program, we're going to be breaking down the top state races so you'll be ready to follow all the returns when they start coming in. And nobody better to get us ready for a night of election watching than a pair of professional political junkies. So joining us for this go-round will be my colleague, KCBS political reporter, Doug Sovereign. Doug Sovereign, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thanks, Keith. Always good to be here with you. Also welcoming on David McEwen, professor of American politics at Sonoma State University. Welcome to you as well. Thank you. Glad to join you junkies. (laughs) (laughs) I'll uh, I'll take that honorific for now, see if I can keep up. Nobody here but us junkies. (laughs) (laughs) So this election cycle is uh, remarkable for a number of reasons. California, uh, as we've been discussing a lot on the air, is already seeing record returns come in. Uh, There's also a high level of concern about the potential for election day disruptions, uh, and those disruptions could come in several different forms. So I want to touch on all those points in uh, just a little bit. But uh, first, since we have you professionals with us, uh, might as well make use of your expertise uh, to really get us all ready for Tuesday evening. I was wondering if you could both share your own election rituals. You know, how do you stay on top of all those races when there's so much coming in. Uh, starting with you, Doug, I, I know your process involves uh, whiteboards and a whole lot of dry erase markers. What's it going to look like this year? <laughs> it's going to be different, I'll tell you that, Keith, because unlike in past years, many years in a row, I'm not going to be in the newsroom. I'm doing this. I've been working from home from my little studio here in my home in Oakland since March. So yeah. instead of my big whiteboard in the newsroom and my multiple TV screens and computer screens, I've got to make do with what I've got at home. So I will still have the TV and a couple of computers. I'm going to borrow a small whiteboard that my kids use every day for Zoom school. It's like an easel. And I can fit some things on there. I, I could probably fit the state ballot measures on there, but I'm going to have to um, probably use computers God forbid, to keep track of, say, the Senate races across the country, the electoral and popular vote on the national, you know, on the presidential. Uh, I won't be able to fit everything on my big whiteboard. So I will be set up in a room with TV and computers and whatever I can muster. And I watch everything at once and I'll be on the radio constantly and I'll be tweeting in between and we'll probably do a a live stream at some point, a webcast, who knows what. And, you know, ample food and water and ready to go very, very late. I'm assuming midnight at the earliest California time. All right. Well, that's how the pros do it in 2020 anyway. Got to stay hydrated. Very important. Uh, <laughs> Professor McEwen, what about yourself? What does 2020 election night look for you? Look like for you? All right. So election night generally lasts four days. Uh, at this point, uh, I mean, as Doug knows, we know it's going to be a late night. We expect it to be a late night and to roll over yeah. uh, into the next day. I deal with political reporters all across the world every day, seven days a week. Deal with, deal with. So you deal with us. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, in this sense, not everyone's a it professional puts up with. <laughs> as, as Doug. Uh, because, and we're very grateful. Because uh, I, I will be dealing, my, my phone will start going off at 4.35 in the morning. It has been for a month. It'll go that way until midnight. Reporters everywhere from Sweden, Serbia, <laughs> the middle of Europe, all the way across uh, the world, all the way uh, again over to Japan, across the U.S., everywhere. 
So on election night, uh, I will be juggling all of that. And at the same time, I have a slew at this point, having been in the business for a little while, of uh, dozens, if not hundreds of students who would be texting me from places all across the country and races that they are watching, both in and out of the business. And what I mean by that, some of them are just political junkies, some of them are in politics and they're following things. And then because of that network and the network I've built over a couple of decades of dealing with reporters and, and political junkies, all of those folks will be hitting me with different things. So to be perfectly honest, that's as helpful as the juggling act that, that Doug talked about. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of balls in the air for both of you, a lot to keep track of. Uh, and uh, hopefully this will all translate into helping keep our listeners uh, keep track of the election as well, because that is the ultimate goal, and that's what we're all working towards. Uh, but let's talk about some of the major trends of this election so far. And since there has been so much vote by mail, uh, this has been an election like no other here in California. We're actually already getting a pretty good sense of uh, the shape of things to come. And uh, one of the big shapes of things to come is record turnout, Doug. We are seeing so many people returning their uh, vote-by-mail ballots in quite a bit early. Yeah, I mean, record in terms of, of sheer numbers of people voting, not necessarily in terms of percentage, but it's pretty extraordinary. And I will say this is a very different year. I have always voted in person my entire life. I'm one of those people who likes to go to the polling place on Election Day. I like to see what's happening, how busy is it. I talk to the workers. I see what their turnout is like. I get my sticker. Um, and I have the luxury of being able to do that because I work on election night, so I've got the daytime free. Well, this year, between everything going on and coronavirus, I just decided, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll vote at home like everybody else. I just did that. I filled out my ballot. I went and put it in a drop box. I've never done this before. It was quite alien to me. Uh, they still send you a sticker in the mail. But that's what people are doing in California and across the country in really record numbers. I mean, Texas has already gathered over 9 million votes, more than were cast in 2016. And it's not even election day yet. You still have everyone who's going to go to the polls on election day. Uh, and they're already over 9 million. And, and the same is being repeated in, in other states. And in California, we're not quite at that level. But the majority of California voters have already voted uh, like in a way we've never seen before. I mean, in the past, you have 70, 75 percent of Californians vote by mail the last couple cycles, but not so far in advance. There's a real sense this time that people have to get those votes in early. They're not going to trust the Postal Service. They're worried about counts being shut down after Election Day. The impetus is there for everybody to vote early, and that's what we're seeing. It's it's extraordinary. And David McEwen, uh, curious for your thoughts on what is behind this uh, surge in participation. Uh, you know, we also saw a surge in registration. Certainly part of that can be attributed to the fact that this is, uh, we're seeing some of the effect of the motor voter program and uh, the fact that people get signed up automatically when they go to the DMV. But it also seems like the just the very heated nature of politics in 2020, the heated partisanship. Uh, that seems to be playing a role as well. Yeah, what, what in 2020 has gone according to anyone's plan? Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's just an extraordinary year. I, there are a number of things going on here. As Doug pointed out, the, one of the key stories from this election season is going to be turnout, turnout, turnout. That serves the challenger better than it does the incumbent because it's framed by what's driving those turnout figures. That's the pandemic over all else, a recession, and protests in the streets. That's a triple whammy against an incumbent party. And you also have a guy at the top of the ticket who Democrats go crazy when he says anything. The media has to cover it. And, and it's unclear that he's grown his base in the last four years because now he has a record. 
So that has energized a lot of people. We see a lot of people voting, not just in Texas or Florida, where this election may come down to Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. We see a lot of 18 to 29 year olds voting in record numbers. We see a lot of Latinx populations voting in Texas where you have to have an excuse to cast an absentee. So it's not easy. We're seeing a lot of people vote in Georgia where you need two forms of photo ID. There's a lot of things that are going on despite what has happened in say 17 states to make voting quote unquote easier. Not all of those states are kind of knee jerk blue states. They're not just like democratic California. These are states like Alaska or Arkansas, states that are making in some ways it easier to vote given COVID, given the recession, given protests and upheaval. All of that sets up the potential for some type of wave that I'm sure we'll talk about, but it is the turnout, turnout, turnout product of this particular election that will be the aftermath that we'll not only talk about, but study as well. And the remarkable thing, Keith, if I, just, if I may, is that given the headwinds for Trump that, that David just mentioned, a recession, a pandemic, I mean, his record, the remarkable thing is this is still close. I mean, we don't yeah. know for sure which way it's going to go. Everything is, is mitigating against him. Uh, and you've got this enormous turnout and, and people not only motivated to vote against him or motivated to vote for him, but also motivated by fear and worrying about getting their votes in early. I mean, it's, we've not seen anything like this before. And yet, uh, you know, this thing is still up in the air. And, and that also has kind of impacts down ballot in states, mm -hmm. in districts. It, it can impact the, the, the processing of ballots for a school board election or a city council election. That's where I think some of the interesting things will happen, uh, not only here in California, but across the country as well, as we look at what is happening the days after the election as well. You raise a really good point. If, if Trump is perhaps the uh, engine that is driving election turnout here in California, uh, it's driving that election towards a lot of other things. And so I want to talk about some of those uh, other things that are also on the ballot that will also see record turnout, record number of people voting on them as well. Uh, real quick, before we get there, though, I want to remind our listeners that this is KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, we're getting ready for a historic election night in California when breaking down the biggest state races with uh, KCBS political reporter Doug Sovereign, as well as David McEwen, professor of American politics at Sonoma State University. So let's talk about some of those other things on the ballot other than the presidential race. And uh, this is California, so there is no shortage of ballot measures for uh, voters to puzzle over and try to wrap their head around. Uh, some of the uh, biggest contenders, obviously, would be uh, Proposition 22 having to do with Uber. Uh, there's a, a rent control measure. There is a split roll uh, taxes. Doug, tell us how uh, the, among the races that you're fo following most closely, uh, how are they shaping up? What are you keeping your eye on? Well, there's quite a few. I mean, we've we've got huge, uh, you know, the most contested ballot measures we, we've ever had. It's a long ballot. Um, the most expensive measure ever, Prop 22, Uber, Lyft, uh, DoorDash, Postmates, spending $200 million on that one. Um, there are some really closely contested ones, and that one's a tough one to call. A couple others are too, but I think Prop 15, Prop 16, Prop 22 are the ones I think we're watching most closely. Prop 15, of course, would would change Prop 13, the property tax rules in California. It's the split roll initiative. It would split off commercial properties and let them be taxed at market rate as opposed to the protections that homeowners have. Um, and it's very close. I mean, the polling has shown it ahead but not by much and not over 50%. And, you know, our rule of thumb over the years is if you don't have 50% in the polls ahead of time on an initiative, you're probably going to lose because late breaking people, undecided people tend to vote no. 
they're confused. They go, oh, hi, I'll just vote no. I vote no on everything. So that one was, it's been pulling like 48, 49. It may get over the top. Again, turnout will be a big factor there, but it's going to be close. Um, then you've got Prop 22, which would let Uber and Lyft and other, uh, you know, delivery app services let their employees be exempt and not be employees. They'd be independent contractors. And that one's tough to call. It's also very close because it doesn't break down necessarily against Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative lines the way a lot of measures do. So there are people who are liberal Democrats who are voting yes because they drive for Uber and like it or they know someone who does or they use Uber. There are conservative Republicans who are voting no because for the same reason. So so that, that's a tough one. It's really close. Uh, and then uh, Prop 16 is the affirmative action one, which is not as close as I thought it would be. I've been surprised by that. Prop 16 would, would restore affirmative action, um, which was taken away in Prop 209. I, I thought that would get more attention. There hasn't been a big money campaign on it. And for whatever reason, it hasn't really caught the popular imagination. It looks like it's going to lose. There are others, too, that we can talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's uh, an awful lot on the list. Uh, turning to you, uh, David McEwen, and uh, we can we can tick through some of the others real quick. But uh, I know that you have a lot of thoughts on the ways that the the ballot races have been changing over the years and how, in some ways, the folks launching these races have gotten more sophisticated. This isn't necessarily uh, your grandfather's ballot race here in uh, California. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, right, the, the ballot measures have become kind of this parallel legislature. And so if you look across different states, Democrats own the legislature in Sacramento. So a lot of Republican interests use the California ballot measure process to go around that to test messages. If you go to Florida, it's, it's the opposite. Republicans own the legislature. Democrats and their interest groups use the initiative process to test a lot of things there. But nonetheless, in California, it's become a hugely expensive exercise, historically and no. And that is that historically, two out of three ballot measures have gone down to defeat. The smartest money in politics has been on the no side of a ballot measure. That may be the case if you're uh, a kidney dialysis uh, company mm -hmm. funder on Proposition 23, where they're just killing the yes side in terms of outspending them 15, 16 to 1. But, but as Doug mentioned about Proposition 22 or 15 or 21, the, those three ballot measures constitute two out of every $3 that are being mm -hmm. raised and spent this particular election. And Prop 22 sets records for the yes side. And it's so hard to get a yes vote. You're going to have to spend more than $200 million, maybe as much as a quarter of a billion dollars or north of up there when all said and done to get that yes vote. It's just very difficult because when voters are perplexed or don't know what to do, as Doug mentioned, they vote no. When they learn what their neighbor believes, they vote against her. And, and the voters also have in California this kind of Jekyll and Hyde mentality that they want to vote for good roads and good schools. They don't want to pay for it. And, and they uh, don't want to get too far in front of things like Doug mentioned, Prop 16. Uh, there are protests in the streets. California is clearly the center of anti or counter Trump. And yet the voter is kind of this Jekyll and Hyde. I'm going to vote all different kinds of ways on the ballot. And so we should see more things pass than we have seen in the recent past. This election, we should see more getting yes votes, but there's still gonna be a very thin, narrow margin that's hugely expensive. And when all is said and done, the ballot measure campaigns are gonna have spent north of $800 million. Only the US presidential election is more expensive. Only that election, that's where we're at. We are getting close to the billion dollar mark to put things on the ballot and to be successful if you can get there and get that yes vote. And the amazing thing about that is that the old record, which we just set you know, a few years ago, was less than 500 million. It was something like 480, <laughs> 470 million. And we yeah. have shattered that. I mean, 
as Dave said, we're going to end up somewhere near 800 million and a quarter of that just on one ballot measure. And they're going to end up paying something like $30 a vote um, for each yes vote they get. I mean, it's, it's, it's out of control. Prop 21 that Dave mentioned, just so people know, is the rent control measure. And the real estate interests have spent a lot of money trying to defeat that one. Um, so we'll see which way that one goes. And, and Keith, if you kind of think about it and your listeners think about it, look, 22 is a ballot measure that maybe only could happen in this time. The, the pandemic has changed how we work. It's changed our relationship to work. Labor is changing, uh, has been changing in, in the near term here. California has been changing. All of this is happening. And this is why the 22 campaign is so instructive. Because if you have an app that can be delivered to a voter's phone and it can be scaled, if you can find a nerd to write an app, any company, regardless of what that looks like, can scale up their message directly to the consumer or the voter. That's hugely powerful moving forward as well. And there's been some controversy over it too, because uh, you know I'm sure we've all gotten these messages from Uber telling us to vote for 22. Uh, I actually we, literally just deleted my Uber app because I got tired of them. There was like more than one a day. <laughs> and that is not how that app is supposed to be used. And there's some dispute over whether this is legal or not. But uh, yeah, they've got... a like a pipeline into your home, they got a pipeline into your hand telling yeah, you to vote I, for something. I mean, this is the ultimate tool for whatever that looks like. I mean, this can work whether it's at a local small business or a, a large business, whatever that looks like. So proponents and opponents across the country are looking at this particular campaign to see if it has scalability and applicability in their own areas. And that's why 22 is is really global in interest for what's happening here. All right. Well, uh, a major trend to watch in this election cycle and as you Uh, Both have been hinting at future election cycles uh, for years to come. I want to remind listeners or inform any listeners who may just be joining us that you are listening to KCBS In-Depth. It's our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, uh, we're getting ready for a historic election night in California uh, and breaking down the biggest state races with uh, KCBS political reporter Doug Sovereign, as well as David McEwen. He's a professor of American politics at Sonoma State University. And going back to you, Professor McEwen, let's talk about congressional races for a second. Obviously, 2018 was a huge wake-up call for uh, Republicans in California. They lost they lost their Orange County stronghold. That was sort of the, the stronghold of conservative power in California. A lot of seats lost back then. This go-round, there's a number of rematches, and it's uh, some folks are asking, you know, could Republicans make back up some of that ground? Yeah, this is where California is just so darn interesting, right? Because in 2016, Donald Trump rolls an inside straight. He wins a couple of states by a, a total of less than 100,000 votes, those states in the, in the upper Midwest. And then you fast forward to 2018, a huge midterm election. In that election, Democrats pull their own inside straight, and they knock off a number of Republicans in, in s- districts in California that had been won by Hillary Clinton, were represented by Republicans. Can they hold those seats moving forward? And that may be difficult despite Democrats doing well, say, nationwide. So one thing we watch on election night is the blue wave, or is there a blue wave that develops? But in California, that blue wave may not fully hit to protect all of those districts. So they had seven seats that they picked up. Can they hold all seven? It's more likely they lose a seat or two. So we'll be watching very closely Congressional District 39. That's the young Kim Gil Cisneros. Cisneros is the incumbent, Democratic incumbent in that seat. That was the closest race in California in 2018. Can Democrats hold on to that seat? What do we see in in Southern California, Congressional District 48, uh, the Rauta, uh, Michelle Steele seat? What what do we see, for example, in, in some of the other seats like Congressional District 10 with Harder 
or uh, really CD21. And I know Doug is uh, also very interested in many of these districts, but Congressional District 21, where the incumbent uh, TJ Cox uh, faces, if you will, uh, Valadeo, that is going to be a, a, an interesting matchup. So the early vote and the early interest in these districts is something we'll watch, as well as what happens on election night and the aftermath. And Doug, anything to add to that? Yeah, well, Dave mentioned a couple of rematches, the Valadeo-Cox race. Um, we've also got the, the Garcia-Christy Smith race down in L.A. and Santa Barbara counties. Uh, you know, the Democrats took seven seats. We didn't think they would. I mean, they were going for seven. I thought, oh, they'll get four or five. They got them all. Uh, they may lose one or two here. They also may take away another one or two that they're trying to take. The thing is, it's always harder to play defense than offense in these situations. Last time they had the advantage of, you know, the midterm running against the incumbent party, which typically loses seats in a midterm. They had a lot of momentum. Healthcare was the issue for the Democrats. It all played to their advantage. Now you've got to defend that seat. You've got a record. You're not just the, the challenger saying, I can do better. Well, what did you do for the first two years? And in some of these districts, you know, the Democrats don't have a registration advantage or they don't have much of one. So um, that's tough. And that's why they might lose one or two. And there are some really attractive Republican challengers, uh, you know, in, in these races. The Republicans have, have recruited great candidates. So um, in a couple of them. So it could go either way. Is there a huge blue wave? Certainly in California, there's going to be in that. Trump's going to lose California perhaps by a record margin. I mean, he could lose by 37, 38%, something like that. Uh, but at some of the local down-ballot races, it doesn't necessarily translate in Orange County, in a couple of counties where the people are still going to make a local decision, even if they're going to vote for Biden, they may split that ticket. And if, if you're the Democratic Party, too, and you're thinking nationwide, you also want to be strategic about where you're putting your resources, what that looks like. They have a lot of money, they have a lot of enthusiasm, and they have some of those resources. But that doesn't translate, as, as Doug mentions, to, to all of the districts in California that were picked up because you might want to concentrate on seats in Pennsylvania or in mm -hmm. Michigan or in other places that they hope to pick up and, and have the blue wave to have a bigger effect in North Carolina, for example. All right. Well, uh, a lot of races to follow there. We are going to stick with uh, California races for just one more second. We actually only have a few minutes left in the program, but we're going to bring things even a little bit more local for this uh, this last little bit and talk about the uh, Senate state Senate races here in the Bay Area. As uh, we see so often here in California, such a blue state, we're seeing uh, some Democrat on Democrat fights uh, in District 11 up uh, near San Francisco. We've got Scott Weiner versus Jackie Fielder. And then in the South Bay fighting over District 15, uh, Jim Bell's seat. We have David uh, Cortezi taking on Ann Ravel. What, what, what should we make of this, David McEwen? Uh, just a kind of a kind of a long pattern that we're seeing of Democrat on Democrat. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, a more recently Democrat on Democrat. We've also seen this, of course, statewide in, in the U.S. Senate race, right? When Kevin DeLeon took on Dianne Feinstein, uh, when Loretta Sanchez took on uh, Kamala Harris back in 2016. But Republicans kind of got there first in terms of doing this kind of party-on-party -party violence. We've seen this out of, of political reform measures that were supposed to, if you will, in the top two system, lend to more moderate candidates. We haven't seen that. So if we look to the South Bay and we look at that state Senate race, uh, the, the state Senate uh, District 15 race, we see someone who's a seasoned political uh, veteran in sense, Dave Cortezzi, right? A Santa Clara County supervisor. He came first uh, in, the, in the March primary. He's been around for a little while. Uh, his was father, almost was almost mayor. Yeah, was almost mayor. That's right. His, fa yeah, San Jose, his yeah. father, uh, Dominic, was in the state assembly mm -hmm. uh, in the early to mid 80s. And then, of course, you see someone like uh, 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 Anne, who's been, if you will, in this place where she comes from the FPPC 
back from the time of Jerry Brown, Barack Obama appointed her uh, onto the FEC in 2013. But nonetheless, can, can a political newcomer beat a seasoned political professional even in this new era? So what's become the focus of that campaign? Obviously money. And we talked a lot about money of ballot measures, but independent expenditures. The, the aftermath, if you will, of Citizens United has reared its ugly head. So that'll be a really interesting race to watch because essentially you have kind of a moderate Dem against a more establishment party Dem. And how that turns out has implications for the future of the party as well. And that race is interesting also to me because Anne Ravel, you know, a national political figure, but she's Absolutely. never run for office before. Never. Dave Cortez, I mean, the Cortez name is so well known in San Jose. He's got a home field advantage. So it's interesting. But yeah, this is all a byproduct of our top two primary system, which was not supposed to produce this a moderate Democrat versus a liberal Democrat in some races like De Leon and Feinstein. Or, or two people who are, you know, shades of the same thing in San Jose. Uh, it was supposed to be, oh, you'll get a more moderate Democrat and a more moderate Republican. But the fact is, in heavily blue areas, you get two Democrats. And in very red areas, you get two Republicans. And that wasn't the plan. Um, but it does actually, in some ways, spice things up a little bit from our point of view, because <laughs> it used to be we'd have a Democrat and a Republican in November. And in a place like the Bay Area, we knew who would win. There was no race. Now, at least we had a race sometimes. Where, oh, you got two Democrats. Makes it interesting. And the same is true in a, in a more red area. But it's all a byproduct of the top two primary. And this is not what I don't... I don't think this is what voters wanted when they <laughs> voted for that, but it's what we got. All right. So... A lot of interesting stuff to watch. Uh, we will take the election in excitement where we can. But uh, closing thoughts I want to get from both of you. Uh, we really only have uh, just a couple of minutes left. But obviously, a major concern that we have not really touched on yet in the program is the concern over Election Day chaos, uh, whether that comes in the form of perhaps mishaps with uh, the way that the election runs itself. We saw some of that in L.A., uh, L.A. County back in March, or whether we might see, as some people fear, actual voter intimidation at the polls, perhaps people showing up and uh, causing mischief. Just curious for both of your feelings, you know, you, you, you both have been watching California politics for a long time. How are you feeling coming into Tuesday? Does this feel like a different sort of election year than you've seen before, Doug? Not in California so much. I, I'm, not, I'm not especially worried about voter intimidation, you know, violence in the streets, any of that in California. I'm really not. I know some people are, but I'm not among them. Um, you know, somebody said, oh, they're boarding up shops in Oakland. Hey, come on. We board up shops in Oakland on a, on a weekly basis for one reason or another. I don't see it, but I do fear that very thing in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan and places where open carry laws mean you can show up at the polls with a gun and stand outside the polling place and intimidate people. I mean, that's already happening. Um, so yeah. And of course the outcome of this election what happens in the aftermath is an open question. We'll have to see. I, I am an eternal optimist, so I'm hoping it won't be what some people fear. But I'm not seeing so much of that in California. Now, that said, there are going to be issues with the ballots. You wonder, did the Democrats shoot themselves in the foot by emphasizing voting by mail so much when that means a higher rate of ballots rejected for not having a signature or the wrong signature or whatever? Um, but I, I, I don't feel, I, I'm not seeing it. I'm, I'm not out on the street as much as I normally would be because of COVID-19, but I don't know about you, David, I'm not getting a sense that, you know, there's going to be riots outside the polling places on Tuesday, especially since 80 or 90% of the people will have already voted and aren't even going to the polling places. Yeah, it's going to be a different dynamic. And I, I'm with you, Doug, in the sense that I'm not worried about it here. There are Registrars in California want to proceed methodically, slowly, almost at a sloth-like pace in terms of counting the vote. Now, they'll have a lot of that prepositioned for counts 
in the hour of 7 p.m. So when the polls close at 8, they're ready to go at 8.01. So we'll have a lot of that, those trends right away. But in, but in places like Wisconsin or Michigan or key counties, if you will, like a Northampton County, Pennsylvania or Bucks County, Pennsylvania or Pinellas County, Florida, those three counties serve as important mm -hmm. barometers of what will happen. Because most registrars are prepared for a Brook Brothers assault. What I mean by that, right, are the uh, attorneys, the lawyers. The mm -hmm. lawyers, they're not prepared for a Proud Boys assault around mm -hmm. the outside of the building. That's a big difference in terms of what it could look like. Now, will that happen? Let's wait and see. There's a difference. If, if, if there's a blue wave and Biden wins by over 300 electoral votes, it's a much harder argument to make that the election is invalid than if it's someplace between 260, 250, and 298, say somewhere right. in there. It's a difference. So we have to have some sense, but it does look like it will come down to a lot of what's happening in Florida on election night, but this is not 2016 and it's not 2000 in some ways. And, and Florida seems to be able to put people into NASA who can put a man on the moon, but can't run an election effectively uh, by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. So hopefully Florida can figure it out. And, and that will be something to watch, particularly in, again, in Pinellas County, Florida, for uh, how things go. That's the area uh, around Tampa, if you will. All right. Well, it's just a, a galaxy of uh, swirling politics to watch out for Tuesday evening. But lucky for us, we have the political minds of Doug Sovereign, KCBS political reporter, as well as David McEwen, professor of American politics at Sonoma State University, uh, watching that galaxy for us, helping us navigate our way through it. We really appreciate it uh, from both of you. And uh, thank you both for joining KCBS In Depth. It was fun. Thanks for having us. I wish I knew half as much as what sits in Doug Sovereign's brain about politics. I, I appreciate being on with him. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> and thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well, get those votes cast. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.